obviously it's meant to happen because otherwise we would not be permanently aroused, which I was constantly. I had to just sit on the tube going from Oxbridge to Harrow or wherever I was going and the pheromones would be ricocheting around the Piccadilly <laughs> line. I just couldn't help it. And I was a terrible, terrible flirt, a terrible flirt. And I still am when I get the chance. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. So every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So one of the things about drag that I am really fascinated by, and we probably covered on this show before, is the decision-making process that you have to follow when you are creating your own drag character. Like, who are they? What do they like? What do they not like? What do they wear? What is their favorite color hair? And, you know, all of those kind of details. Because to me, it seems like it's a bit of a big commitment. Like, if things go well, you're kind of stuck with this character for the rest of your life and you're like forever associated with this person. And so you want to make sure that it's the right decision that you're making, right? Or am I just overthinking things? I'm probably just overthinking things. Anyway, so this week I got to pick the brains of Ty Jeffries, who is the man behind the drag character Miss Hope Springs, who is this old-school, glamorous chanteuse of a drag queen who takes her cues from the old Hollywood starlets of yesteryear. And we got together to talk about Madame Jojo's, which was a legendary, and I can't emphasize that enough, a legendary nightclub in London Soho that closed in 2014 after being open continuously since the 1960s. So obviously we talk about gentrification and what impact that's having on Soho, which used to be this exciting, gritty place, but is now kind of more like a Disney-fied version of a glamorous, exciting place. We also talk about the decision-making process behind Miss Hope Springs and what it's like to be horny non-stop when you are a teenager. Hmm. Oh, and I should say that there is one mention in this conversation of Polari. And if you don't know what Polari is already, it is a slang language used predominantly by gay men in the United Kingdom up until about the 1960s when it started to fall out of favour. Right, that is enough of a history lesson for today. Let's get into the episode. I left home when I was about 16 and got started then. Oh, so what do you mean by got started? Well, started with my independent, autonomous life, which I I knew that I was gay and Mm -hmm. was, you know, out and about being a good gay. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, so what is on the checklist of being a good gay? What's um, involved? Well, apart from the obvious cliches, I'm, I'm so such a cliched gay of a certain age, loving Hollywood, loving old movies, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and sneaking off from school to go and watch Garbo at the Everyman Cinema, you know, Garbo season. And loving Barbara Streisand, Gigi Garland, and Liza Minnelli, of course. And I started painting my face at a very early age, uh, painting their faces on my face. Oh, interesting. So what's an early age? Well, that was literally, I think, about 9, 10, 11, Ah. probably. Yeah. My sister had a box of Mary Quant crayons they were they were makeup but they were in the form of crayons and I think she didn't understand why they were getting worn down so quickly (laughs) because anytime everyone was out of the house I'd sneak up and I'd do a Merle Oberon or a Garbo or a Dietrich on my face so kids this is the first time I'm going to say kids nowadays in this conversation it might happen again I apologize in advance for generalizing about the youth But kids nowadays kind of have a blueprint, right? Like if they think, oh, I might be homosexual or I might not be heterosexual, I might be queer, they can go online and they can look things up and be like, oh, so this is kind of what the community likes. This is what happens. But in the olden days, and sorry, (laughs) I should probably like do do some inverted commas, but like before the internet, before there were resources, people just gravitated towards what they liked, and didn't necessarily do that because they thought, oh, this is me being a good gay, to borrow your term, or to figure out what my community does. But how do you think everyone ended up landing on very similar things? <laughs> That's an interesting point. I do think because it was accessible, it's almost like a secret language. When you, at my age, you know, I'm mm-hmm. in my 60s, I'm have to kill you all now, you know how old I am. Um, it was television, and we had people like Danny LaRue, so we knew that was something different. I mean, I come from, from a showbiz family, so Danny LaRue was actually a family friend, oh. and my parents had a lot of gay friends. Um, I had a very strange dynamic, because my parents had a lot of gay friends, and yet when it came to me, it was not okay. Ah. So there was a real um, schism there between the two, the acceptance of our other gay friends and a gay subculture, because my parents used to use Polari. Oh, interesting. Because they were in the theatre and there was a theatre language. So they had a lot of gay friends, but it was my shame and their shame that I was a gay. And was that something that you found out the hard way or did you just inherently know that they wouldn't accept you and so you didn't talk about it? I knew inherently that it was not to be talked about, especially because some of the things my mother would say to me, which were very, very clear shots across the bow, uh, not to talk about it, not to be gay, you better not be, you know. Um, Oh, gosh. And uh, so that set up a very strange dynamic, although I would sit with them both and watch Garbo and Dietrich and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford movies Uh on Sunday and all the old musicals. And they enjoyed it hugely. And 
I absorbed all that like a sort of night storage heater, I suppose. And I was like, this I, I love, this is what I love. I love the music and I love the, the costumes and the makeup and the fantasy of it all. I just have to write down absorbed it like a night storage heater because I don't know, I've never heard that phrase before and I'm going to look it up and I'm going to start putting it into my everyday language. <laughs> but what do you think, when watching those films, what do you think you saw that they didn't see? I think we were seeing the same things, but I was getting a, like a different current out of it and maybe a different current sea. Um, I was getting my dreams. My dreams were sort of coming to life at that age. The magic, the beauty, the mystery, the fascination with all those Hollywood faces, the dialogue, the photography, the cinematography, which was so beautiful, the music, the songs, you know. I have never really moved on from that. I'm stuck in, in a sort of Saturday afternoon matinee. Found your groove, stuck to it. Yes, that's true, I did. And so was it that you wanted to be Garbo? Yes, of course. I mean, who doesn't want to be Garbo? Uh, I was fascinated by her specifically, the fact that she retired at the peak of her fame. That really touched something in me. I thought that was absolutely amazing and brave and tragic. That such a great artist just stopped and never did what she did so exquisitely ever again. And yet I thought it was majestic of her. So I, I, I was, I'm still fascinated by her. Oh. Um, and, and I think I also got the subtext of the women being very, very strong, very, very powerful. The women being paid more in Hollywood than the men at that time. They were the ones with the huge salaries. And they were playing these really fully fleshed out parts. And very often, you know, at a certain time, they'd have a gun and they'd be mm. doing quite a lot of killing people. And they were in a position of power and strength and glamour. And they looked fabulous while they did it, of course. Are you telling me that you wanted a gun? Well, <laughs> uh, I would like a Hollywood gun, a cinematic gun. I have done some photo shoots where I've had a gun to emulate those... Well, those women's films, you know, the mm. melodramas uh, that Joan Crawford, especially Betty Davis made. I mean, they very often shot men uh, to great effect. And um, I kind of approve of it, it, it cinematically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Not something I go around doing. For the subtext it provides, yes. Yeah, and it's phallic, isn't it? It's a sort <laughs> of um, undercurrent of that too. Yeah, I, I never shy away from phallic things. Jolly good. So there was a weirdness in your relationship with your parents. And did that encourage you to leave home at 16? Or do you think that would have happened anyway? No, I, I got myself out. I felt the atmosphere was too difficult for me to exist in. Like uh, putting a fresh water fish in salt water, you know, it was just not... It was toxic, and uh, I left home as soon as I could and never really went back. I mean, of course, I went back to visit, mm -hmm. went back to see them as much as I could, but I also took a lot of time out for myself to be myself, to find a way of being myself without the uh, feeling of being, you know, 
watched over and uh, mm. judged and criticised. So let's just like quickly go back, because I'm not sure whether we hammered out all of the details of being a good gay. So with your 16-year-old self in mind and this newfound freedom that you have after uh, leaving home, how did you practice that homosexuality? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I practiced so much I finally got it right. <laughs> I'm still trying. Things like I think I was, it was, I think, 1978, I went to see Bette Midler at the Palladium. Oh, wow. You know, I knew about her, I'd heard her, I think I'd seen her on television, and I took myself off to to see her, and that was a transformatory experience. And there was, you know, however many thousand people at the Palladium, gay men, a lot of guys <laughs> in leather, a lot of clones, as they were called back in the day, with moustaches and shirts, and this incredible overwhelming smell of poppers yes <laughs> amazing atmosphere uh it was a sort of religious experience that so that one you know and i mean i couldn't go out for a pint of milk without coming home with a husband how well, not necessarily my own husband probably somebody else's <laughs> husband at that point i had a, a wild time i was young and beautiful and it was the 70s <laughs> So to be a good gay, you're saying you just have to shag a lot. Is that what you're saying? It's part of it, doesn't it? It's supposed <laughs> it, I mean, my hormones are raging. This is where the practice comes in, yeah? Right. Yeah, obviously it's meant to happen because otherwise we would not be permanently aroused, which I was constantly. I had to just sit on the tube going from Oxbridge to Harrow or wherever I was going and the pheromones would be ricocheting around the Piccadilly <laughs> line. I just couldn't help it. And I was a terrible, terrible flirt, a terrible flirt. And I still am when I get the chance. Well, good, good. I think that we all should flirt more. I mean, in a consensual way, obviously. Um, of course. And so, I mean, there wasn't just your hormones running through you. There was this desire and passion for music. Yes. So what was happening there and what were your plans? So I, I was writing songs from the age of about five. Some uh, American friends left a, a beautiful grand piano in our potting shed and I would just go in and found I could play. It was an extraordinary thing. Um, and I've been playing ever since, writing songs ever since. Um, so music and songwriting has always been the main thread. Mm -hmm. Playing the piano, I practice nearly every day and write nearly every day. And I created Miss Hope Springs much, much later on where all that glamour and love of Hollywood that was stored up like the night storage heater <laughs> was switched on and had an outlet like radiating heat. Mm. So all the love of Hollywood, Garbo, Dietrich, Piaf, Garland, Liza Minnelli, and the f creating a mask on my face as I did as a child, it all sort of came together in that. So you say it came later, like how old were you when she was born? Well, uh, she was born initially in the 90s. Well, she was born, as I said, you know, when I was painting my face, when I was 10. Um, the first time I ever really did drag was 
in the 80s, uh, something called Kinky Kalinky, oh, yeah. which was a big club night. And I used to go to that. I was sort of a little bit part of that Lee Bowery crowd on the edges. Never been really one to be in the middle of a crowd. I'm, we always find me in, in a corner. In the kitchen at parties, yeah. That's, that is absolutely me. Um, and in New York, I did, I did my first sort of photo shoot and film as a character I created called Gloria Constantine who was a sort of movie star, silent movie star character. And drag was really, in those days, a, 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 you know, an art form. It still is. But I think it was more nuanced and had more shades and kind of shadow than it does today. I'm more attracted to the shadowy side of it than I am the dressing up and the wigs and makeup and the extremes. So what do you mean by that? Like that it's lost some of its edge? Well, that's, that's I, very... I think it's got a lot of edge. I think it's a, just a different kind of edge. It's a, it's a sharp edge. And I prefer a sort of gritty, dark saw, possibly, rather than a, a, a sharp, glittering, shiny we're talking thing. a lot about violent weapons today. Oh, things gosh, it could be uh, used at. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those things, yeah, they can also be used creatively. <laughs> How can a gun be used creatively? <laughs> it could be used in a creative way to... to um, Symbolise the phallus, uh, yes. Some effect. Yeah. As in, 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 oh, yeah, I'm trying to find a way to dig myself out of this hole. <laughs> I... I, I uh, there we go with another very dark image. I do, I am a very dark person. I mean, my sense of humor is extremely dark. I have extremely long, very dark spells in my life. And when I was a little boy, Raoul Dahl was a, a friend of my parents and used to come to the house and he would sit on my bed and tell me an ongoing story called The Rat Boy of Prague, which I don't think he exists anywhere else, but he used to tell me about this little boy who was left alone by his parents and the rats brought him up. Mm -hmm. A bit like Home Alone, but again, much, much darker. I can't help but have a, a, a very dark subterranean <laughs> basement going on. And I'm really sorry if I've given the impression that I'm knocking it. I am here for it. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> okay. not criticising at all. Um, I still want to better understand what you mean about the difference between drag now and then. And you've talked about, like, shadows and shade. Do you mean there was more, like, room for ambiguity? I'm going to say maybe it was more theatrical, but in the true essence of theatre, not... Oh, okay. Like a melodramatic way more. Yes. Okay. Not the spectacle of fabulous costumes and amazing makeup, which they do now. And it's all very high octane, rather, to me, forced joviality. Mm -hmm. I haven't laughed once watching RuPaul's Drag Race when I've ever watched it. It just, you know, it, it scares me more than anything. And the propensity to be vile and bitchy and unkind to people that I just don't think is funny or necessary. I'll kill them, yes, but let's be nice about it. Mm, mm, mm. Going back to that running gag, um, I preferred the theatre of drag, which I saw in theatres mostly, um, 
it's, now it's become more of a, a joke, a light-hearted, frothy, mm. uh, you know, very OTT, and not exploring the darker themes, the, the melodrama, the pathos, the tragedy that can be so well expressed in drag and through drag and under the umbrella of drag. Mm-hmm. But do you not think that there's been an expansion of what drag is rather than a shift in direction? Not really, because I'm not seeing the existence as almost like a thread, like humans and Neanderthals. And yet humans have now gone on, like the RuPaul drag race has become the thing. And that other thread, Mm -hmm. theatrical, more more nuanced, darker, uh, more melodramatic, possibly more serious, possibly saying important things Mm. has been overshadowed, I think. I mean, I'm doing it. I'm carrying on with what I do. Um, Neil Bartlett, the wonderful writer and director, came to see the show recently and said it reminds him of everything he loves about performance because it is funny and it is silly, but it also is very tragic and very sad. At the core, mm-hmm. maybe that's just what I like. Because of... Mm, okay, actually, let me ask you this then. If you were to describe Miss Hope Springs in five words, what would they be? Uh, no, I'm not very good with math, so I'm stalling more <laughs> to try and figure out how many words is five words. Just keep talking and then I'll tell you to stop <laughs> when it's time. <laughs> I mean, it's okay, one of the strap lines is a glittering glimpse of vintage Vegas, which is... You know, it says something. Yeah. But she's, she's... Um, but and, and much like Vegas, does she have a seedy underbelly? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what <laughs> she talks about. She gives you the glamorous showgirl, but she tells you the stories that most nightclub singers or sh- chanteurses <laughs> would um, not tell you. They'd hide them. They'd keep them maybe mm-hmm. for their autobiography mm-hmm. but she tells you these things you know about the her husband Irving and they live together on a camper van in Dungeness and um, her first husband Gianfranco the hook Stampolides who worked in pest control and in the Pink Pelican Casino and, and she says it didn't work out the wedding and his body was found in the concrete of the 405 freeway extension she said, it's terrible, I know, but a lot cheaper than divorce. <laughs> and so how, like, so this is one of the things that I'm always really interested in with drag because I've never been a drag performer and never created a character. It sounds as though what you're talking about is that you kind of played around a little bit. You went to some events and you tried drag on. You created Gloria Constantine. And then Miss Hope Springs comes after that. Like, how did you know to abandon Gloria? And how did you know that Miss Hope was the one to stick with? So interesting. I I think it's like just finding a good idea, a really good idea that has legs that you know you can flesh out, you can continue, you can give it life. It inspires you. I mean, sure, I probably could have done some stuff with Gloria Constantine and... You're giving me ideas now that maybe it's time to bring her back. <laughs> Dust her off, but, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think she, Miss Hope Springs, somebody said she arrived fully formed when she first came 
along, which was in the in the nineties. So I've been doing this a long time. Although you would think I just started, probably thirty years. Is it must be? So I've been at it a long time, and I've created hope mostly to to perform my songs. And so she gave me a great outlet for. I always say that I'm the studio. I'm MGM. She's my star. <laughs> so I go. Well, what we're we going to do with her now? And why are you the studio and not the performer? I'm both, but I'm more comfortable in a costume with a with a with a mask yeah. on. I can. I can be myself, I can reveal more of myself, and I think the human condition by wearing a mask. Mm, I, I find that fascinating. And I understand it, but um, I haven't got experience of that myself. Maybe you should have a go one day. I'll be accused of, like, this is the, the, what the LGBT agenda, saying <laughs> you should try drag. <laughs> it's the thin end of the wedge. You'll be yeah, a fully-fledged yeah. homosexual by the end of it. Yes, and I don't have my own autonomy, so I'll be swept away in this yeah, wave of queerness. Yeah, I understand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so we're here to talk about Madame Jojo's. So what comes first? Is it Miss Hope Springs or Madame Jojo's in your life? Well, the, 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 the name Miss Hope Springs, I think, came later than Madame Jojo's. So I first went to Madame Jojo's very late 70s, I would say early 80s, as a punter, you know, would go with friends and go and see a show. This is back in the day when there was people like Ruby Venezuela, who was the big star there, and Venus Mantrap, I remember. Uh, It was a fabulous old-fashioned drag show. It was very glamorous. It, It wasn't crazily expensive. Madame Jojo was there. She used to, you know, be in the house. Madame Jojo um, is an actual person. I didn't. I she was. She was that. an actual person. Yes, ah. I think she was South American. She was lovely and beautiful and very glamorous and all you could possibly want from a a, a nightclub venue hostess. Um, that was my first experience going as a punter. Then in the nineties, I. Worked there. I was asked to join a news, a news setup there. Ah, okay. So let's stay on the eighties for the yeah. time being. So, yeah. do you remember the first time you ever went to Madame Jojo's? I remember it visually. Ah, amazing. I remember going in, how it looked, how dark it was, all that marvelous brass, Art Deco brass railings everywhere, a lot of red plush velvet. It really hadn't changed between the 80s yeah. and when it, when it closed down. Um, so let's paint the scene then. So this is the early 80s. You moved to London in the late 70s, so you were in your 20s by this stage. Yeah. What was going on in your life? Uh, uh, back in the 80s, yeah, I must say there was a little bit of a haze. <laughs> Uh, for various reasons. With this hormones bouncing around the place. That maybe paints the scene enough, yeah. Yes, I think it was hormones that did it. Um, <laughs> and so do you remember who you went with the first time you went to Madame Jojo's? I had a very good friend called Elena, who sadly passed away recently. I think I was probably with her. 
It was like it was a crowd, a night nightclub, fashion, mm-hmm. and also a bit of a, a underground criminal subculture. I think was hanging out there too. Ah, yes, because. Not to descend into lots of negativity, but also, if you want to, let's just do that, because I'm, I'm quite cool with it. Soho is quite different now from when it was in the 80s. What was it like? And, like, what are the main differences? I mean, obviously, Soho used to be a lot more skeezy. I think it was, and I think that's one of the reasons JoJo's doesn't exist anymore, is it was cleared out in, the, mm-hmm. in about 2004. 13, 14, that was it, 14 was the the death knell, really, because I think there was some drama with a taxi driver or the cab rank or something, and there was, I can't get into the details, I don't know what the details are, but there was some violence going on between the people who ran the club and some cab drivers, and uh, it, all, it got really dark, and then they, they shot Madame Jojo's just as, as a way of sort of trying to clean it up, clean up mm. the streets really around there. Mm. In fact, I was weirdly uh, the sort of cadenza, if that's the word, or coda, is uh, I was the last act on at oh. Madame Jojo's before it was shot. Oh, so okay, oh, wait, let's, let's hold that, go back to this first night because we're still there. Yes, um, we're there. You've talked about remembering visually what it looked like, what it felt like to step into that space. What happened from there? Do you remember what adventures you got up to on that evening? I can remember the the very potent cocktail of various people. As I said, you know, there were straight people there, there were gay people there, there were trans people there, there were drag queens there. And it was a real old school kind of nightclub set up. Of course, back in the day when people were smoking cigarettes, mm-hmm. so the air was full of smoke, um, then that there would be the, the, the shows. Uh, and then I think we went to an after hours club. I remember them clearly and they were really dives. Oh my God. And when you, you know. say dives, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or both? This is bordering on the bad. <laughs> this is bordering on the bad. Great because they existed. Marvellous because we had somewhere to go to carry on drinking. But what we were drinking would be quite <laughs> another matter because... The least questions asked, the better. Yeah, absolutely. I think I might still be suffering from a hangover from one of those <laughs> evenings out, in fact. <laughs> And, and over the years, you became more involved in Madame Jojo's? Um, accidentally, things would come along. I'd be asked to perform, be part of a new event, a new season with the different managers. Often they didn't really work. That People would be trying to do something different with the place and it worked best with the old favourites. Um, I think when Madame Jojo died or stopped working there shortly before she died, if I'm right, um, I think it was her energy that really made it what it was. Mm -hmm. And after that, it was sort of, 
it was living on on its past glories in a way from its reputation and the name as a great name great venue it had built up a reputation as a brand in a way but I just think it probably needed her to sustain it Mm -hmm. so why was it that you wanted to talk about Madame Jojo's today why was that the venue selected I think because I have some history with it and there's a tie through my life going back to my sort of earliest times going out in London. And I may have gone earlier to Madame Jojo's, but it was definitely a long thread, you know, from the early 80s right through to 2014. It's a big chunk of one's life and a happy little kaleidoscope of images and times and faces of people who are now long gone. Mm. And and so what do you think Soho has lost in losing Madame Jojo's? Well, surely it was a sort of lovely sequined pumping heart at the centre of it. And it straddled somehow the, the seediest aspects and the most underground aspects and also the glamour of show business, even if it was in a, a small way, you know, not big West End theatres. It was true cabaret boite, as one might find in Paris or Berlin in, in the 20s. It had that energy to it, you know, certainly steeped in the, in the red plush velvet, you know, <laughs> I would imagine. So it's lost, uh, it's lost its heart, I think, in many ways, that maybe Madame Jojo's was Mm -hmm. a symbolic heart. So if I were to ask you a really cheesy question about casting your mind back to that first night when you went there in the early 80s to Madame Jojo's, if you were able to give that version of you one piece of advice, what would you say? Have more fun. Have more fun. I'm, as I said earlier, you know, I'm the one that you'll find standing in the kitchens at parties or at the edge of a room. I've always had a natural kind of shyness to me. Uh, so I would be there absorbing it all and loving the, uh, the decadence. But I would probably be the, in, in a corner mm. watching rather than really, really participating. So what does more fun mean then, just throwing yourself into those situations? Being less cautious, possibly, you know, more open to meeting new people. Um, I think I was then maybe more, but if I was going back, I would just say have more. Whatever you did, do more. Enjoy it it more. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any memories of Madame Jojo's? or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share. Well, if you do, I would love to hear from you. So why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories from queer clubbing. Visit me at lostspacespodcast.com and find the section share a lost space to tell me all about adventures or misadventures that you may have gotten up to. 
You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Ty by following him on Twitter, where his handle is at Ty Jeffries Piano. Or you can visit his website, tyjeffries.com, or the website of Miss Hope Springs, which is misshopesprings.com. And the links will be in the show notes for this episode, so don't worry about scrambling to write this down. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate, uh, and I know that sounds insincere, but I would actually really appreciate if you subscribed, took the time to leave a review on your podcast platform, or just tell other people who you think might be interested in giving it a wee listen. My name is Kay Anderson, and you've been listening to Lost Spaces.